I'd like to invite you to open up in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1. We, we did end Colossians and Philemon. Genesis chapter 1. While you're turning there, I, I feel like I should give you a small heads up. Tonight will be a little bit different because we are introducing a, uh, a, a theological and biblical idea that will be paving the way for a new sermon series. And so tonight might feel a little more sort of teaching oriented, um, you know, which is fine. We have a lot of flexibility during this hour. Uh, but, but I've been praying that the Lord would, would work in your heart um, even tonight. And I'm really excited about, about what we have coming up in the, in the coming months. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said... Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is there, and that you are a God who speaks. And your word has power. We know the story of the verses that follow what we have read tonight. And your word itself is a testimony that in your kindness you have spoken to us so that we could know you. And so now I pray that, O God, that you would speak tonight. That through your word and with the power of your spirit, you would open our eyes to understand your work of salvation all throughout history, and that you would help us to understand how you want us to listen to you and to treat and keep your word. Please help us in these things tonight, we pray. Amen. Well, two of the most basic elements of the Christian faith appear right here in the first couple of verses of Scripture. Doctrines that are so central and are so critical that if they were to fall, the whole of the Christian faith would crumble immediately. In fact, they're so central that we could probably say that they're obvious, and they could even be hiding in plain sight. The two doctrines we see, at least two primary doctrines we see in these few verses, are, as I said in my prayer, that there is a God. In the beginning, God. And this God is not silent. Verse 3 says, And God speaks. I don't think you can be a Christian without believing these two truths. That there is a God and He speaks. And yet it's the second truth, the former truth, that in some way distinguishes Christianity from some other religions. That we have a God and He has made an effort to reveal Himself to us. He speaks. Our God communicates. And His words have power. Power to create. God said, let there be light. There was light. They're powerful, creative words. And as we will see, I hope tonight, even more powerful than that. But first, I'd like to tell you the story about a man named Richard Elhu. 
It's not his real name, but that's what we'll call him tonight. Richard was a Muslim who was growing up in one of the most religiously devout Muslim areas of, of Nigeria. And he had absolutely zero interest in, in reading the Bible. But one day, Richard met a missionary. And a missionary, that missionary, faithfully gave this man a Bible. Well, Richard accepted the Bible and quickly discovered a clever use for it. Not reading it, but instead he tore the pages out and used them to roll marijuana cigarettes. He'd roll joints. The pages, it seems, were just the right size and they were nice and thin, so it wasn't too papery. I suppose, I'm not speaking from experience. <laughs> No. There's so many jokes I'm thinking of. The pages were thin, which was supposedly good. And cigarette paper is expensive uh, in, in Nigeria. And so this was a, an, an economic decision. So every day, Richard would tear out a few pages of the Bible. And he'd shove them in his pocket. And throughout the day, he would use them to roll and smoke throughout the day. Until one day in 1978, Richard was laying in his bed at the end of the day. And he couldn't sleep. And as he was laying there, he heard that crinkle in his pocket and pulled out uh, a page that he had torn out of the scriptures. And not knowing that Mark was going to read this passage, wouldn't, wouldn't you know it, he read from Psalm chapter 34, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the man who takes refuge in him. And over the next weeks, Richard could not get that verse out of his head. So he found his way back to the Christian who gave him the Bible, who faithfully shared the gospel with him. And not that day, but another day, sometime later, Richard was once again in his room by himself and he prayed, Lord God, I want to taste you in the way this verse says. And later that night, Richard became a Christian. His family was not pleased about his conversion. At first they were angry with him and then they rejected him. His father said, I wish that you, my son, were dead. I'd rather you be dead than be a Christian. The local mosque, the religious leaders there, announced on the loudspeaker of his defection from the Islamic faith. Richard was the only Christian in his community. Yet God raised him up to be a pastor in a local area with factory workers and even in the face of significant persecution, he served faithfully. He went on to get further training and uh, is a fellow student of mine at the seminary where I attend and where Mark attended. How did all this begin? Words. With God's words. We have a God who has spoken. And his words have power. And his word, as Richard can attest, and as I hope all of you can attest, his words give, give life. The importance of God's word is a central conviction at Trinity Baptist Church. I think it's one of our distinctives in the community. One of the ways that we may stand out, not from all churches, but from some churches, in the way that we approach the Bible. 
And I've said this before, but I feel like it's fitting to uh, work in tonight to talk with you about how we approach the Bible in our preaching and, and word ministries. Mark and I both are committed to expository preaching. Fancy word you might have heard before, which simply, it simply means that we don't want to speak about God as much as we want God to speak through his word. So really, I mean, and, and depending on your church background, you can probably think back on sermons that you've heard. Men that have, that have preached, and you may have been able to distinguish the difference, right? The, the guy that talks about God and about Christian sort of things, and then men whom God speaks through. Perhaps you've noticed that difference over the years. But practically, for us at Trinity, one of the things that this means is that when we preach, we are striving to let God speak. I cannot lead Richard to Christ through a joint piece of paper, right? I don't have that power, right? But God does. So we want to set his word forth and let it do its powerful work, and then God gets all the glory. And we, one of the ways we do this is we strive to make the main point of the passage be the main point of the sermon. In other words, we believe that God decides what he wants to say, right? He has done that in the Bible, and so we want the Bible to speak. And when we see what God says, we try to say it and explain it. Even though we're speaking, we try to let God do the talking. So normally, if you've been here for any length of time, you've probably noticed that normally what that means for us is we'll work through a single book of Scripture, whether it's John or Revelation or 1 Samuel or Philemon, whatever it is. And we usually take a small portion, like a verse, a paragraph, maybe a, maybe a whole chapter, and, and work through that text together. And I still think that this is generally, most of the time, the best way to do this, but there, I think there are a few small disadvantages. Maybe they're significant. One is that the style of preaching makes it hard to address topics systematically, right? A systematic or topical approach, right? We, for example, what does the Bible say about parenting or angels or immigration, right? That, that can be a little bit harder to address, and it may come up in, in, in a text, but it's hard to think about it holistically sometimes. And we might slow down and think about it. We did this in Colossians. We spent a whole, we spent maybe two sermons on one verse, but, but that was really a systematic or topical approach. But we, we don't always have the chance to say, what does the whole Bible say about this, about this matter? I think another advantage is, or disadvantage is that it can be really easy to lose sight of the whole storyline of the Bible. Now, we, we try not to do that, but I think it can be a, a, a danger when we spend two years in John or a year in Colossians or whatever, it can sometimes be hard to pick up on what I like to think of as these mega themes, right? This sounds like a dump truck. That'd be a good dump truck, like a mega theme that, that flows across Scripture. Here's one way to think about it. Um, you know, if, if you were to... It, it'd be good, I suppose, to study the moon under a microscope, right? Uh, NASA has brought back space rocks, and I presume they put those under microscopes and, you know, studied them up, up close, moon rocks. And I'm sure there's lots of things we can learn. But it's also good to study the moon through a telescope or even zoom out even, 
even further, right? It can be really helpful to know that the moon is round or that it has a particular relationship with the earth or that it has an effect on our tides, right? It's good to know that the moon has a certain relationship to the sun and a relationship in in the solar system and a relationship in the Milky Way. And it's good to know that the Hubble telescope tells us that the Milky Way is the galaxy that is one of a hundred billion galaxies. Or is it 200 billion? They're changing their mind. Aren't humans great? We're so smart. It might be 100 billion. It might be 200 billion galaxies. Not sure, right? Anyways. But do, do you see how this works? That we can learn so much by studying a thing in relationship to other things. And the same is true of the Bible. Tonight, I'm starting a new series where we're going to be using a telescope more than a microscope. That is, rather than working through a book or a particular passage of Scripture, we're going to be looking at big themes that flow across the Bible. And I'm going to, so it could be something like the biblical theme of sacrifice or the temple or clothing. We'll see. I haven't planned it all out yet. And I'm going to try to give you a biblical reason for, for doing this tonight. Because I, I want you to, I want to do much more than just teach you interesting things about the Bible. I'm, I'm, I've, you'll probably learn it during this series. I hope you learn uh, a lot in the coming months. But I'm really concerned that we understand what it means that God speaks to us. And how it is that he has spoken. What it means that he has spoken and how he has spoken. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at two texts that are really important on how they teach us about the nature of God's Word. And we're briefly going to consider some implications uh, for how that affects how we read the Bible. So if you'll turn with me again to 2 Timothy chapter 3, a well-known passage about the nature of Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. As you're turning there, just briefly, uh, in, in this letter, Paul is writing to Pastor Timothy, and he's writing to prepare him for persecution that's coming up for him and his ministry and the church that he cares for. And it's interesting because one of the ways that he prepares him is he tells him about the Bible. Isn't that interesting? To prepare him for hardship, he tells him about what the Bible is. Let's look at verse 14. We'll just read three verses. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The first thing I'd like for you to note from this text, so I think we've got five characteristics of the Bible from this verse and another. The first I'd like for you to notice is that the Bible is a written word. Emphasis on written. It's really simple to see from this text. Verse 15, he refers to the sacred writings, right? 
Then again in verse 16, Paul says that all scripture, we'll come back to that, is breathed out by God. And when he, the word he uses there for scripture is, guess what? It's writings, which in the New Testament is a common, it's, it's what the scriptures are always referred to as the writings or the holy writings referring to the scriptures. Why is this important, right? You, why do we need to know that the Bible is writing? Well, I, I think it is important. It may not seem groundbreaking, but it's in order to know that in order to hear from God, that if you want access to what God reveals about himself, about what God says about your life and about your problems, you have to go to a book. It's a book. Which means you have to read. Quiet gasp. We need to recognize the Bible is a book. I hear people say quite often, I just don't like to read. I'm not a reader. And personally, I think that's a real shame. Um, but but I, I know what you mean, right? Like reading can be hard. Right? But I don't like to read. And I think there's a danger that if we let that attitude creep in to influence our Christian life and the way we approach the Bible, then we are sinning. I don't like to hear from God. I don't like God's words. Right? Like that's, tr- that's trouble, right? It's an attitude to repent of. God did not give us a movie. And he didn't give us a sculpture. And he didn't give us interpretive dance. And he didn't give us, right? He gave us a book. And one of the things, one of the things that my wife and I pray, we started, I don't know when we started this, but it comes up on my prayer app from time to time. Uh, I pray that my children would love books. And one of the, one of the reasons that I pray that is, is I want them to enjoy the richness of a literary life. But, but really, I want them to learn to read well. Because in order to access the Bible, you have to read. Karis is learning how to read, and during our devotions the other night, she pointed out and she said, I don't remember what word she said, but she found two words. It's like, she's reading the Word of God. And we tell her all the time, it's so exciting you're learning to read, because then you can read the Bible by yourself. We Christians are a people of the book. We are a book people. We give our lives to this. If you want to hear from the living God, you must go to a book. Which means you need some reading skills, right? You need some, you need some reading skills. Of course, you need to understand letters and sounds and phonics and, and words. You have to know a language and you, gotta have, a, you have, a, have to have a translation of the Bible that you can understand, right? All those things. You, 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 and you need to understand how sentences work. Right? They're not, like, they're not, all the words aren't jumbled together. And, and grammar. You need to know the difference in <laughs> tenses. Now, you don't have to know what they're called, but you need to be able to distinguish the difference in I will rise again and I rose again. Right? That's real important. <laughs> right? We, we, gotta, we have to be people that read. We have to recognize that every word in the Bible has a relationship with other words in the Bible. Which is what the whole series is about. And of course, we need reading comprehension. Some of you are squirming, or you're sweating, like reading comprehension. Man, that reminds me of the ACT or, or the third grade or, or whatever, right? Like, if, if you remember, like, it can be hard. Has anyone here ever read the Bible and thought, I have no idea what I just read? Right? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, comprehension. The Bible is not magic. It's not like if you sleep on it or if you just like read it while you're falling asleep. It doesn't like impact you. It, if you go read the Bible in Farsi, it's not going to help you. Right? We have to comprehend to hear from the Lord. So we need reading strategies and comprehension strategies. We need to recognize that everything that's included in the Bible, it's all there for a reason. Every time that we read a fact or a historical detail or a genealogy or some detail about geography, I remember reading, studying through Samuel, like, I kind of skip over the geography, and then I'm like, where are we? And I'm like, well, I guess I need the geography, right? Like, or the, all the geographical detail, it's all there because an author chose it and placed it in the text in order to convey meaning so that you would understand his point, right? Like, it's all there for a purpose. And when we're reading the Bible, we have to always be asking, what does the author mean? Right? You've got to comprehend. But, but we also have to understand how literature works. Right? Like uh, our buddy Richard, ripping pages out of the Bible, he didn't understand like, that it's a book. It was bound together. Right? That, that there's a reason for that. It, it's a unit. God in his providence has given us an incredibly diverse word. His word is made up of historical narrative. There's a fat guy that gets killed. Right? That's interesting. It's made up of poetry that is almost erotic. It's made up of narratives and parables and proverbs and letters and, uh, and apocalyptic literature. It's all different genres. All of which require a reading strategy. It has metaphors. It has idioms. It has sarcasm. Right? It has familiar storylines. There are times where the Bible has very small plots with a small climax and a small tension and a small resolution. It's got big plots and big tension and big resolution. It's got tragedy. It's got heroes. It's got the most epic villain ever. Right? The Bible is a written word. And we have to approach it as such. But I also want you to notice, secondly, the Bible is a unity. A unity. Verse 16 famously attributes that all Scripture is from the breath of God. Right? All Scripture is breathed out by God. We often call this the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. Right? The Spirit, this is cool, the Spirit... The scripture was spirated, right? It was inspired. It was breathed out as in a creative act by God. Which means, think about it, even though the Bible was written by dozens of different authors, human authors, each of which has a different personality, a different writing style, a different language, and sometimes even different theological perspectives, yet still through the work of the Spirit, God ensured that what the authors wrote is exactly what he wanted to say. It's the doctrine of inspiration. Second Peter describes this well. He says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful picture of how God has given us his word. 
But an important thing to notice here is who is the author of Scripture? Right? Well, you probably know that Moses is, uh, wrote the book of Genesis. But who is the author of Scripture? Right, we, God. Well, we know this. God is the author of Scripture. If you look back down at verse 16, you'll notice that there's a certain part of Scripture, or a certain Scripture that has this quality. It says all Scripture. All Scripture. Okay, now here's what we're getting at. Why does it matter that all Scriptures God breathe? Well, that means that the God, that the author of Revelation is also the one who authored Genesis. And the one who authored Galatians is also the one who authored Song of Solomon. They have the same divine author. Right? Okay, so let me ask you this. Can God tell a lie? No. The Bible tells us. God cannot tell a lie. Hebrews 6 says, It is impossible for God to lie. What does that mean for our approach to the Bible? What's it mean? Is it all true? Yes. Right? Uh, Does it contradict itself? No. What about when it seems to? Well, there must be something we don't understand. Because God does not lie. But here's the big one. If God is the author of all of Scripture, then all of the Bible is a unity. It's a unit. It fits together as a unit. All 66 books are inspired by the same author. Wouldn't we expect the author to have a unified word to us? Which means it fits together. Now this has a thousand applications for your Bible reading. <laughs> it, it really does, an interpretation. And hopefully we will see some of them in the, coming, in the coming weeks. But in its most basic form, let me encourage you, we must always read the Bible as a unified whole. That means we read Revelation in light of Daniel. It means we read Hebrews in light of Exodus. Right? You have to always have the whole Bible in view. So as you're zooming in on one passage, you also need to think about the broader canon. It's canonical context. More on this later. But let's flip over to another passage in Hebrews chapter 1. You can turn to the right, precisely two pages. If you have the crossway, thin line, large print edition, two pages. Hebrews chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. third characteristic I'd like to draw your attention to comes from this passage, and it's a little more subtle, but that God has revealed himself in history. God has revealed himself in or throughout history. God's word is historical, not hysterical, historical. If you look back at verse 1, you'll notice there's a lot of time language in this text. You see that it says God revealed himself long ago in one way, 
But then it says, but in these last days, he has revealed himself in a different way. So there's two periods of revelation. There's the long ago period, when he revealed to the fathers. And then there's, but in these last days. Two separate times. At one period of history, he spoke by the prophets. At another period of history, he spoke by his son. From this, can we not see that there is a historical flow to Revelation? That means that there was a time in history where God had not spoken all of his words. There are things that we have that Abraham did not have. Words. There's a historical flow. God in his providence did not choose to reveal himself or his word all at one time. He did it gradually. Isn't that interesting? He did that for a purpose. Which means that the truth that he revealed earlier was incomplete. It doesn't mean that it was incorrect. doesn't mean that it was less true. And it certainly doesn't mean, in spite of what mega pastor church people say, it doesn't mean that it's less relevant or useful. But what it does mean is that God's word is revealed across time. And so when he commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son Isaac, and then at the last minute prepared a ram for the sacrifice, right? We understand this. It's a story that has a tremendous amount of theological significance. But does that story not take on more significance, a fuller significance when we come to read the passage in light of Christ? Now, do you see how the revelation is fuller? The first part wasn't broken. It was incomplete. This is particularly true of prophecy. On a larger scale, can we simply recognize that God's plan to save the world unfolds across history? It was at the right time, in the fullness of time, that Christ came. That means that there was a time that was wrong for him to come. It's a historical act. This has sometimes been called redemptive history. Creation, right? There's a creation, there's, a, his, there's a, a historical period of creation in the Bible, a historical period of uh, fall, a historical period of redemption, and a historical period of restoration. Which means that everything in the Bible, everything has a historical context. And so when we read, we need to be thinking, where am I in the story? Where am I on the timeline? Right? If, if you read Lord of the Rings and jump to the last third of book three, you're going to like miss stuff, right? And, 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 but if you read like the first part of book two and then the next part of book three and then back to book, like, you've you got to have the whole story in view. And you've got to have the history in view. My wife is studying uh, a passage in Ezekiel, or uh, Uh, Exodus chapter 12 on the the Passover, right? And you can get really confused if you read all the elements of the Lord's Supper, right, from uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, if you read all those things in to the initial Passover, couldn't you? It it could be confusing because there's a historical uh, relationship. Even though they're clearly related, they have a historical relationship to one another. One came before the other. And that has a significant impact on interpretation. So it's closely connected. But a fourth fourth thing to notice is the Bible is organic. I don't mean 
needlessly more expensive or without pesticide or whatever, right? It means that it grows as life. There's a historical progression to the Bible, which in some ways, in many ways, means the Bible grows and it develops. Think of an apple tree. An apple tree begins with a seed, and then it sprouts and grows into a sapling, right? So you have, at all these different stages of development, you have a, you have a seed that grows into a sapling, which eventually grows into a mature apple tree, which eventually produces apples, right? So the root, the trunk, the branches, the leaves, the apples, they're all a part of the apple tree, right? There is an organic relationship to it. It's all one tree. Well, that's how many themes in the Bible are. They're given to us in one place in seed form, and then you might encounter them in another place in sapling form, and then in another place you'll find them in apple form. And we get really confused if we confuse the apple with the seed and the seed with the sapling. We can get really confused, especially with the portions of the Bible that we're not as familiar with. And there are dozens, I would say hundreds of themes like this in the Bible. And we misunderstand or misinterpret or ignore their development and get confused. This is why there's confusion about the Sabbath or about the land that Israel uh, is to inhabit. These are all themes that unfold and grow organically. The Bible revelation is organic. A fifth and final point is that the Bible culminates in Christ. The Bi- all of the Bible points towards Christ. And there's so much to say about this. Really quickly, make sure you see it in the text. We see that God has spoken. He's spoken over throughout history. He's spoken in a tremendous variety of ways. But, it says, in the last days, how has he spoken? In his Son. And if God has spoken through Christ, what could be a better word than Christ? Like, what, what more could God say? Does that mean that there's things that we don't know? Yeah, there's still things we don't know. But we have a complete word. Christ is the completion of God's revelation. Verse 3 tells us, the book of Hebrews is about the glory of Christ, that Jesus is the very radiance of God. Do you see that, verse 3? He's the, if that's unclear, the exact imprint of his nature. If you want to know God, you need Jesus. There, like what he is the full, fully revealed expression of God. He's the final word. All of the Bible is leading up to Christ. The phrase there, the last days, that has a sense of, of finality, right? It's a period in history that's saying that God's plan of redemption is nearing its final stage. And there's other really significant texts in the Bible that help us understand this. Jesus, in John chapter 5, told the Pharisees, like, he, he told them, hey, all of the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament, all of them prophesy about who? About me. You're searching them and you're missing me. He criticized them for missing Jesus in the Old Testament. And then on Luke, in Luke 24, right before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, these words... These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you. Listen carefully. So that everything written about me in the law of Moses, what's that? First five books of the Bible, right? Everything written about me in the first five books of the Bible 
Wait a minute, where, where's Jesus in the first five books of the Bible? Well, he's, he's there. Everything written about me in the, in the law of Moses and, and the prophets and the Psalms. In other words, everything else. <laughs> so that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the writings, the scriptures. The whole Bible, it's all about Christ. Which means no matter where we're reading, we can expect the Bible to be either anticipating or revealing or celebrating the coming of Christ. That's why Paul says, for all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Their yes and amen. He is the fulfillment. The world's most famous tapestry is called the Baya Tapestry. Listen to this statistic. It is 230 feet long. So there's not a hallway in the church that we could stretch this tapestry out. 230 feet long. For football people, it's 70 yards, right? For some reason, I can, whatever, right? It's big, it's long. And it's also really old. It is, they debate, but it's, they basically think it's a thousand years old. This is a thousand year old tapestry. It's French. On these, on this 70, 70, uh, or on this 230 foot, what did I say? 230 foot long tapestry, there are 70 scenes that have been intricately sewed and, and woven in to the cloth. Scenes that depict the events of the Norman conquest of England leading up to the famous Battle of Hastings. And if you think about it, the tapestry is so massive that it's impossible to take in all at once. Like, if, think about it. If I was to put a picture of a, of a 230 foot long tapestry up here, you either would only be able to see a little bit or you'd have to like back up or we'd have to like chop it up and break. Like, <laughs> that's why most people, if you learn about it, they have to get a video and they like walk down the tapestry. So you can't see it all at once. There's like, there's no way to see it. You could like zoom in and look at some details, like one of the 70 scenes, or you can back up 100 feet and like try to see it all at once, but then you can't see like what's on the tapestry. The, the Bible is like the bio tapestry. It, it's, it's so intricately woven and stitched together with so many different themes and scenes and characters and developments that are all linked together by this common thread, Christ. And it's easy to get lost. Many of us have spent most of our time like on one or two scenes that aren't as weird as some of the other scenes, right? Or that are harder to understand. My goal in the coming weeks is to do something a little different. Rather than talking through a single passage, we're going to try to explore the unity of the Bible. That we're, so we're going to, that's why we have this foundational component tonight. We're going to recognize what the Bible says about itself. That it's a unified whole. It's a written word. It unfolds progressively and organically across history. And that all of its parts are linked together because it ultimately has one author. And we're going to try to trace the development of a variety of themes as they unfold across the pages of Scripture. And as we've said, I think we're justified in doing this because there is one author and he has a unified purpose and he's revealed himself gradually on purpose. We're going to explore the why. 
Biblical uh, theologians call this discipline biblical theology. Right? It's kind of a strange name for it, right? It's, but the idea is you're looking at all of the Bible, biblical theology. And we're going to use the tools of biblical theology to explore the Bible for what it is, the unified word of God. So I hope that you'll join us in the coming weeks. But before we close, I want to, I want to issue a word of application. And tonight has been a little different, uh, but I do want to, I, I want to end here. We began all this in Genesis chapter 1, seeing that there's a God and that he has spoken. And we've talked a little about the nature of that word. But I want to ask you tonight, that if you believe that, that if you believe that there is a God, and if you believe that he has spoken, the question is this. What have you done with his word? How is your attitude towards the word of the Lord? Do you know that for some of us, God has spoken words that we haven't found time to read yet? Do you read the Bible? Are you hungry to hear from the Lord? Or do you despise it? Barely make time for it. Don't take time to memorize it or study it or learn. Do you obey the word? When you read, how do you respond? Is there anything in your life tonight that you know, that you've learned from the Bible, that you know is at odds with how you're living? I wrote that question and I thought, "Uh uh-oh, I think I've got some of those things. Things that I know, I just don't do them. How do we respond to the word of God? And of course, the ultimate question is, how do we respond to Christ, who is the word of God? Christ is the penultimate word of God. It is through him that God has revealed his plan to save the world. The way you respond to Christ is the most important thing. We must submit to him as Lord. Let me close this in prayer as we go tonight. Father, we pray that you would help us to treat your word with fear and trembling, to recognize that you are a consuming fire and that when you speak, mountains throw themselves into the sea and the earth trembles. Help us, O God, to tremble as we come to your word. Not because we're afraid of you. We have no need to be afraid in Christ, but because we respect you. Help us to treasure your word. Let it produce fruit, sweet, sweet fruit in our lives, even tonight, even tomorrow morning, before kids wake up and before lunches are packed and before we head off to work. Give us a desire to hear from you and then work to change us, we pray. Amen.